As recently as a year ago, the WHO, the World Health Organization, declared the Zika virus epidemic a public health emergency. We really interested in how this affects Canada. I'm Donald McCauley, Associate Editor for CMAJ, and today we have the opportunity to talk to Andrea Bogill, the Clinical Director of the Tropical Disease Unit at Toronto General Hospital and Assistant Professor in the Department of Medicine at the University of Toronto. We'd like to give a little bit of exposure to the work and some of the epidemiology of Zika virus in Canada. Welcome to this podcast, Andrea. Thanks so much for having me. First, maybe tell us a little bit about yourself. So I am uh, the medical director of the Tropical Disease Unit at Toronto General Hospital. So in my clinical work, I exclusively see patients returning from travel. So those are ill-returned travelers and uh, new migrants to the country. So immigrants and refugees. That's my primary clinical sphere. Well, you've been involved with the Zika virus and some of the investigations about it. Tell us why our Canadian doctor listeners should be concerned about the Zika virus. Well, Zika virus, as you know, emerged in the Americas uh, in late 2015 in a widespread manner. It was introduced to the Americas uh, in uh, late 2013 or potentially even a bit earlier than that. Uh, but widespread transmission really became recognized in late 2015. And Canadians are a highly mobile population, and we travel in great numbers every year to the Americas, particularly the Caribbean and Central America. And since uh, the onset of the outbreak that was focused in northeastern Brazil, the transmission has really just taken off and in, uh, come to involve 50 countries to date in the Americas, including the United States. So there is a, a reason to be concerned because of uh, the volume of Canadian travelers to the Americas, but also because of the devastating new uh, sequelae that have been recognized in, uh, in patients affected by Zika, and that primarily relates to the congenital Zika virus syndrome and then potentially some neurologic complications as well in adults. Yeah, would you like to tell us a little bit about those? Tell me about the, the congenital concerns we have. So, well, we know that the neurologic manifestations of Zika virus can range from really devastating neuronal agenesis and destruction in developing fetuses, all the way to very subtle paresthesia and weakness in adults. And so, undifferentiated neuronal cells, like what you would find in a developing fetus, are almost universally permissive to infection with Zika virus. And we know this from laboratory experiments in human neuroblastoma cell lines. Differentiated neuronal cells, on the other hand, as one would see in the adult central nervous system, are quite resistant to infection with Zika virus, with really less than 1% of differentiated neuroblastoma cells becoming infected in lab experiments. But we also know that following placental transmission of Zika virus, particularly in the first trimester of pregnancy, the virus propagates in human neural progenitor cells, leading to alteration of signaling and immune pathways, and ultimately causing downregulation of neurogenesis and upregulation of apoptosis, both of which culminate in neuron death. So the functioning of many genes contributing to neuronal development are perturbed directly by Zika virus, and naturally, this can have devastating consequences to the developing fetal brain, and that's why we end up seeing things like the microcephaly, calcifications in the brain, corpus callosum agenesis, et cetera, and even more subtle fetal effects. So, uh, you know, this is not particularly newsworthy, but really in the highly endemic area, we've noted a uh, real epidemic of colic, so lots of irritability in newborns where Zika virus has been intensely transmitted. Well, I can, I can see the concern with this. We're also concerned about the effect on adults and the potential to develop Guillain-Barre. Perhaps you talk a little bit about that. 
Well, we we do know that Guillain-Barre syndrome occurs acutely in Zika virus, so manifesting a mean of sort of seven days following the onset of Zika symptoms. Compared to, say, Guillain-Barre that's triggered by, you know, the typical uh, infection like Campylobacter, which classically occurs during week two or three following diarrhea, even out to a couple of months. So we're seeing Guillain-Barre certainly coming back uh, in folks with Zika, and, and the presentation is much more acute than, than we've seen previously with other infections. And we don't know why the GBS of Zika appears to be more of this para-infectious rather than a classic post-infectious phenomenon, but certainly one possibility is a direct neuropathogenic mechanism contributing to GBS or a GBS-like picture that we've seen before, like paresthesias and very subtle weaknesses that occur in adults. Um, and again, this is more acute and, and not necessarily related to the kind of immune-mediated uh, molecular mimicry that's seen with the classic post-infectious GBS. So Canadians traveling to the Americas, how would they be infected with this virus? So Canadians traveling to the Americas would be infected by the bite of a mosquito, a particular day-biting mosquito that can also transmit other diseases like dengue fever and chikungunya virus. So those are both widespread throughout the Americas as well. In addition to the vectorial transmission, there is uh, the potential for sexual transmission. So patients returning to Canada now, if they were concerned about the Zika virus, what symptoms would we expect? So in terms of the most common symptoms that present after uh, Zika virus infection, well, like um, other flaviviral infections, Zika is a very short incubation, short duration illness. So um, really a lot of patients might even develop symptoms while traveling, and that was noted uh, in about 70% of our cases in our cohort. So only about 30% of travelers actually develop their symptoms after returning from their travel because of the very short incubation period of the virus. Um, but rash was by far the most common represented symptom. So rash was present in our cohort in, over in about 90%. And then this was followed by fever, which occurred in 80%. And so it's a very uh, typical flaviviral infection in that um, about half of patients will experience joint pain and muscle pain and almost the same number with headache. Conjunctivitis emerged uh, as a sort of a, a more unique clinical manifestation amongst flaviviral infections with Zika, but we only noted that in about 12% of our cohort. So just moving on to your study as you introduced some of the symptoms, tell me how you collected the data, how people presented, and if the sample that you collected are representative of all Canadians. So CanTravNet is a group of post-travel clinics situated across the country, and we're also uh, members of the larger Global Geosentinel Surveillance Network, which is funded by both the U.S. CDC and the International Society for Travel Medicine to contribute surveillance data on ill-return travelers. So data that includes sort of basic demographics, trip details, and symptoms are collected at the initial clinical encounter. And then final diagnoses are assigned by staff MDs with expertise in travel and tropical medicine. All of our sites are academically affiliated, and our sub-network of CanTravNet is actually funded by the Public Health Agency of Canada, where we contribute to their situational awareness of travel and migration health issues. And again, that would include information about emerging infectious diseases such as Zika. So among over 1,100 ill-return travelers from the Americas evaluated at our sites over the one-year period from October 2015 to September 2016, 4% had Zika virus confirmed as the cause of their illness, 
and another 4% had dengue, while 2% had chikungunya. So we were surprised to find that Zika and dengue were equally represented amongst this cohort of return travelers, as typically dengue outnumbers other arboviral infections substantially. The exception to that is when we are in an outbreak scenario, such as we were with chikungunya in the Americas in 2014, where we also noted a more equalized ratio of dengue to chikungunya imports. So in addition, we noted some travel preponderance amongst those with Zika virus and that tourists and those traveling to visit friends and relatives were almost equally represented at, you know, 41% and 37% respectively, whereas for the usual CAN-TRAVNAT patient population, those traveling to visit friends and relatives typically comprise about 12 to 15% and tourists more than half. We also noted that among the women travelers with Zika, 80% were of childbearing age and three were pregnant, two of whom had an adverse pregnancy outcome. Another true travelers presented with a Guillain-Barre-like syndrome, meaning that four of 41 travelers with Zika virus, so about 10%, had a complicated course of infection. So patients would come to us following travel or migration with an illness. Our centers are referral centers only. So meaning that the uh, traveler must have had a clinical encounter prior to seeing uh, a CanTravNet site. So we saw about 12% of cases of Zika across Canada during our enrollment period. And most of those travelers were actually acutely unwell febrile return travelers with fairly undifferentiated illnesses. So although our center specialized in the care of ill return travelers, many of our Zika patients were referred to us via emergency rooms, including all four patients with adverse pregnancy or neurologic outcomes, suggesting, uh, you know, very little referral bias, although certainly our data uh, pertain only to those ill travelers with Zika returning from the Americas in particular and are not necessarily generalizable to all Canadian travelers. So, you know, we found that about 4% of ill travelers in our cohort, the entire cohort of ill travelers seen over the one-year enrollment period, returned from the Americas with Zika virus, our denominator is comprised only of ill-returned travelers who sought care, right, for specific symptoms that were presumably concerning enough to motivate a visit to one's family physician or the emergency department. So our, our network will necessarily underestimate asymptomatic and mild infections as many travelers will not bother to even seek care for such illnesses or certainly if they don't have symptoms at all. So it's important to understand that, you know, 4% of all travelers to the Americas are not going to return with Zika virus, but uh, in our very specific cohort of ill-returned travelers, uh, we did see about a 4% prevalence. Yeah, so this is a, a secondary referral center, so the, these patients Correct. have been seen al already. So tell me, this is 12% of what you describe as the, as the overall national burden. How, how are the other uh, patients identified? So they would be identified in a similar manner. They would present back to their family physician or potentially uh, their obstetrician if they were pregnant or at the emergency room with a, a febrile illness. And then that diagnostic testing would be ordered by the attending physician, and it just would occur outside of one of our specialized designated network sites. So we have fairly broad geographic representation of CanTravNet. We've got seven sites situated across Canada, but we lack representation in sort of uh, the eastern part, like so the maritime provinces and certainly the northern part of Canada. But really, our, our centers are situated in the most populous, sort of densely populated um, metropolitan areas of Canada. So theoretically, we would have a catchment of about 47% of Canada's population. Though again, we are just seven sites, so it's a it's a 
you know, a sample, certainly, of a larger population. So then when patients return from countries and they are concerned, what what should the clinician do? So a patient arrives to, to an office uh, and discusses with the clinician that they've been in the Americas and they have a fever. What should the clinician do in those circumstances? So if the clinician is, is unfamiliar with uh, with with managing patients who are ill from uh, after travel, they should certainly enlist the assistance of a person with expertise in that arena. Malaria remains the number one etiologic cause of fever in the returning traveler, and it's, of course, deadly. So anytime a person returns from travel with a fever, the very first test that needs to be done is malaria. In addition to that, blood cultures to exclude bacteremia are appropriate. And our, on our CATMAT website, we have guidelines around the approach to fever in the returning traveler. So in addition to excluding the very imminent life-threatening causes of illness, like malaria and uh, typhoid fever, for instance, or other bacteremias, if the patient has specific epidemiologic risk or, or um, compatible clinical symptoms, they could consider testing that patient for or Zika virus, chikungunya, and dengue, as those three viruses are transmitted by the exact same vector uh, that bites during the day, and we've certainly seen co-infections. But certainly enlisting the assistance of an infectious diseases specialist uh, who has expertise in, in post-travel medicine would be a reasonable first uh, first step if the uh, physician is uncomfortable or is not familiar with, with fever in the returning traveler. Now, you mentioned testing. Tell me a little bit about the testing protocols. I, I find them a little bit confusing. Perhaps you could explain a little bit about the testing protocols used in the study. Right. So our testing protocol, in fact, changed over the course of the study because our enrollment began uh, October 1st, 2015, at which time testing capacity actually didn't exist in Canada at all. So for the first sort of three to four months, of the widespread recognition of, of transmission in the Americas, all of our specimens were going down to the CDC in the United States and testing was conducted there. It was only uh, from the beginning of February 2016 where we really developed the capacity in Canada to do the testing. And so the diagnostic algorithms morphed a little bit over time just by virtue of the, the different testing laboratories. So now, at this point, our tests go through the National Microbiology Laboratory, which is situated in Winnipeg. And what happens is if a patient comes back and is it within the first couple of weeks of illness, they will have serum drawn and potentially urine collected for PCR. So that's a nucleic acid-based test that looks for the RNA of the virus in either blood or the urine or even cerebral spinal fluid. And that test is most likely to be positive acutely when the patient is acutely unwell. And that's why we really recommend it only for the first kind of 10 days to two weeks of illness. Thereafter, uh, it's a serologic-based test. So the first looks for the acute IgM antibody, and then there's a confirmatory plaque reduction neutralization test. The challenge with uh, serology is that um, Zika is, of course, a flavivirus and has the tendency to cross-react with antibodies to other flaviviruses. So if a person has been affected before by dengue or has received a yellow fever immunization, for example, they could have a false positive Zika serologic test. 
One of the more surprising findings in our study was around the method of diagnostic confirmation. So about half of travelers with Zika in this study presented for care to us within 10 days of symptom onset, so fairly acutely. But PCR was positive in only 50% of those, while serology was positive in 75%. So said another way, in 75% of those presenting acutely within 10 days of symptom onset, only one of the recommended diagnostic tests was positive, supporting this two-pronged diagnostic approach rather than selecting just PCR or just serology for those with acute illness. The other thing that we noted um, was prolonged viremia. So it's been documented now, well documented, in fact, that uh, pregnant women carrying congenitally infected fetuses can have a prolonged viral illness and prolonged viremia even detecting the virus in the blood out to many weeks. So there is clearly exceptions to the diagnostic algorithms that obviously need to be considered in the clinical workup of the patient. So looking back now, this study was um, in the 12 months up to uh, September 30th. Of course, it, it's a limited period of time. What's the overall profile, do you think, of Zika virus in Canada at present? Well, I think, you know, what was interesting for us is that during the first half of the outbreak, the burden of Zika virus was borne mostly by our travelers to South America who were traveling for the purpose of visiting friends and relatives. So that's a very specific type of travel purpose. Those folks tend to, they go home for a longer period of time. They stay in local homes. They tend not to, uh, to eat out at, you know, restaurants or at fancy resorts, right? They're really living in the local environment. And we noted that most of our cases were occurring in that population. Whereas during the second half of our enrollment period, once the virus had started to really pick up transmission in, in the Caribbean and Central America, almost all of our cases occurred there. So Central American and Caribbean transmission, uh, predominantly amongst tourist travelers during the latter half of our enrollment period. So and that probably reflects a reduction in localized transmission in uh, in the initially epidemic areas, right, where where some level of immunity uh, build up in the in the local population and transmission starts to 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 decline. So, what do you think are the general concerns for Canadians? Should Canadians be concerned when they travel to the Americas? What advice would you give? So. As per our, you know, committee to advise on tropical medicine and travel guidelines, um, that are published, by the way, on the Public Health Agency of Canada's website. So that's the committee to advise on tropical medicine and travel have, uh, published a number of guidelines related to all manner of issues surrounding travel and health, as well as our national arthropod bite avoidance guidelines. But in particular, the Zika guidelines were just updated uh, uh, this month. So if people just type in CATMAT, C-A-T-M-A-T, into their search bar, they'll come up with the uh, the website and all of the uh, guidance documents are there. Um, but as for our Zika guidelines, you know, pregnant women should defer travel to areas where Zika virus is actively transmitted and barrier precautions during sexual activity should occur during and after travel. Um, also, travelers should be reminded to practice vigilant insect precautions, such as uh, using a DEET-based repellent or an Icaridin-based repellent. Those are two insect repellents that are licensed and marketed in Canada. People can also wear long clothing and, and use screening to avoid mosquito bites. And again, it's important to remember that 
the insect precautions, so the mosquito bite avoidance, will help protect against other vector-borne diseases that are transmitted all throughout the tropics as well, like dengue, chikungunya, and malaria. Um, before traveling, I always advise travelers to visit the Government of Canada's travel.gc.ca website as it contains destination-specific health information. And certainly seeking a pre-travel encounter with a medical practitioner is advisable as well. Um, I think it's important for physicians in Canada to familiarize themselves with the national guidelines, specifically around Zika and arthropod bites, as I mentioned. Uh, then the final thing would be for travelers to promptly seek care for any fever or other symptoms that develop after traveling, particularly if they travel to an area known to have malaria present. Fever in a traveler returning from the tropics is malaria until proven otherwise, but in those presenting with symptoms like rash, arthralgia, myalgia, headache, arboviral infections, including things like dengue, chikungunya, and Zika virus should also be considered. Uh, but in addition to that, there are specialized travel medicine clinics that will support travelers for pre-travel immunization and itinerary counseling and uh, chemoprophylaxis. Many of our listeners will be those clinicians to whom these people come. So what, what advice would you give to the clinicians? What will they say to patients who come to them? Well, they should advise certainly deferral of travel for pregnant women. Uh, to areas where Zika virus is being transmitted. People planning conception imminently should probably consider deferring travel, although there might be exceptional circumstances where travel cannot be deferred. Uh, reiterating the importance of barrier uh, precautions during sexual activity, not just upon return from travel, but during travel as well. Remember that uh, this virus is being transmitted by vectors in uh, in areas throughout the Americas, but it's also being transmitted sexually. So precautions, uh, barrier precautions during sexual activity while in uh, the risk area and then again upon return are very important pieces of information. And then clinicians can familiarize themselves with uh, the arthropod bite avoidance strategies that we illustrate in our arthropod bite avoidance guidelines. Um, and then again, all travelers should be reminded to seek care immediately upon return if they develop symptoms of fever or any other concerning symptomatology. Andrea, thank you very much for joining us to discuss your, your work and indeed further discuss the effects and the possible long-term effects on urological conditions of the Zika virus. Thanks so much for having me, Donald. It was a pleasure. I've been speaking with Dr. Andrea Bogold, Clinical Director in the Tropical Disease Unit at Toronto General Hospital and Assistant Professor in the Department of Medicine at the University of Toronto. To read the research article she authored, visit cmaj.ca. I hope you've enjoyed this podcast, so please leave a rating on iTunes or give us your feedback on SoundCloud or any of our social media channels.